Sing me a song of the last that is gone. Sake that last the eye. Mary of souls, she sailed on a day over the sea to sky. Billow and breeze, islands and seas, mountains of rain and sun. All that was good, all that was fair, all that was me is gone. Sing me a song of last that is gone. Take that last the so she sailed on a day over the sea to sky. Welcome to Tea, Toast, and Trivia. Thank you for listening in. I am your host, Rebecca Budd. And I am looking forward to sharing this moment with you. The 1745 Jacobite Rebellion has been romanticized in literature and media. However, this was a difficult and complex period. The stories of those who lived during this time have been captured in The Lion in Mourning manuscript which was compiled by Reverend Robert Forbes. The tragic battle of Culloden shattered the hopes of restoring the Stuarts to the throne. The communities and social structure of the Scottish Highlands were changed forever. Dr. Leith Davis, professor of English at Simon Fraser University, and the director of Simon Fraser University's Research Center for Scottish Studies is currently investigating and creating a digital humanities project on The Lion in Mourning. The project is a collaboration with the National Library of Scotland and Simon Fraser University's Digital Humanities Innovation Lab. Today I am joined by Juliana Wager, Dr. Davis's research assistant, to share her thoughts on the Lion in Morning project. Juliana recently completed her Bachelor of Arts at Simon Fraser University in English, Gender, and Women's Studies. She is currently working towards her Master's in English at Simon Fraser University. Her research interests include 18th century Scottish literature, women's literature, and Scottish women's travel writing. I invite you to put the kettle on and add to this exciting conversation. Welcome, Juliana, and thank you for joining me today to discuss The Lion in Mourning. Thank you for having me. It has been an exciting project for you, hasn't it? It has opened so many doors for me and has invited me so lovingly into this world of Scottish studies, and I'm so happy to be here. September 1745, Charles Edward Stewart 
was on his descent from the Highlands when the Reverend Robert Forbes was arrested at St. Ninian's near Stirling. Was he a Jacobite sympathizer? He was a Jacobite sympathizer. So he was an Episcopalian minister. And at that point, he was going to join Charles Edward Stewart and his troops and was arrested because of that connection. He also got his degree at Aberdeen University, which was a known Jacobite university. So he was confined because of his known Jacobite connections. I did not know that Aberdeen University was a Jacobite hotbed. I actually learned this last night. I double-checked with belief that all my answers were correct. And she told me that Aberdeen was known to be Jacobite. So anyone that was there was kind of targeted. So that's an area of research that I'm actually now interested in. I can see why. Trust Leith to know that. Oh, of course. She knows everything. (laughs) (laughs) We'll quote you on that. Okay. Do you think that his arrest came as a surprise? I think maybe all Jacobites kind of knew that they would have this target on their back. And they were just very loyal and dedicated to their throne and also to Charles Edward Stuart. I think it was maybe in the back of his mind that this could happen. Just writing the manuscripts itself was a risk. Well, it seems to me Charles Stuart was very courageous. I mean, even in the manuscript, the way that Forbes mentions him is always very loyal and he cares about his troops and he cares about his supporters. And it's a really interesting depiction because a lot of the other material that I've read through Leith's courses that I've taken depict him in differing ways. So seeing Forbes write him this way as very caring and very human, we get this kind of depiction of him as an actual person that has feelings as well and wants to support anyone that he can. Which brings me to the whole concept of being a witness. A witness to events that will never happen again, but change the world they lived in. Robert Forbes was confined in Stirling Castle and in Edinburgh Castle. Is this the time that he decided to collect the stories in the Lion in Mourning? Robert Forbes was interested in having a complete and true collection of stories from the perspectives of the Jacobites. He included accounts told to him by Jacobites, written exactly as they were told to him, letters copied down, songs, poems, and speeches that he felt contributed to the narrative of the Jacobites. Every volume has a title page, where Forbes writes, quote, a collection as exactly made as the iniquity of the times would permit, of speeches, letters, journals, etc., relative to the affairs, but more particularly, the dangers and distresses of dot, dot, dot. Forbes wrote these manuscripts to include all accounts. The failures, the torture, the trauma, but also the joys and happiness that was able to be found. Writing a manuscript like this was dangerous for him and anyone who had their name or account written inside it. But Forbes did not want people to forget what the Jacobites went through. Thus, the 10-volume manuscript was written and Leith and the rest of the Line and Morning team are ensuring that it will not be forgotten. I think that's very important. It will not be forgotten. When you read and record his words in today's technology, what do you feel? I feel it's exciting. I think it's, it's like holding a relic of the past 
and kind of feeling what Forbes and other people involved in the manuscript felt because he captures absolutely everything that they've said to him or written to him. It's a piece of history that feels so strange to be reading and writing because most things from the 18th century you are not allowed to read or you don't have the actual copy. But when I went to the National Library of Scotland in Edinburgh, we got to hold the actual manuscripts and see them for what they are. It was really incredible. And it was one of the first experiences I've had in an archive before. So just doing that alone was amazing. Seeing all of them in a row together, it was so exciting. We only had them for an hour, but one day I will definitely see them again. If you lived in 1745, would you trust the Reverend Robert Forbes to take your statement, to write your thoughts? That is a big question, because I know now I would love that. I think that would be amazing to kind of have that physical materiality of writing it down. But I think it definitely depends on the situation that you're in, because it was a risk, definitely, but I would love that. Well, people must have trusted him with their stories. I've never thought of it through that lens before. That's really interesting that they have to have that trust and level of connection to him in order for them to give him these stories. So that's another research paper right there dedicated to you. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. I often wonder if I sat down with him and had a cup of tea, what would we talk about? I think he would want you to talk and he to write it down. It's interesting, a lot of the accounts we see of him listening to them, he's having them over dinner, he's making these bonds with people. So that's definitely a level of trust if you're sharing food and having a moment together. One of the women that I'm going to talk about briefly, definitely her writing is really interesting to look at because you can tell that she's writing what she hears, so she doesn't have that education. So I guess she's illiterate, but she clearly is able to write from sounds, and it's really interesting to look at that. It's like you're looking into their souls, isn't it? It is very personal. Robert Forbes was meticulous in his writing. What was it like to read his handwriting? I was surprised how readable his handwriting is and how clearly each line is laid out. I've only had a little bit of experience reading handwriting from the 18th century, so I was initially nervous about reading his work. But it's actually very clear. There are a few tricky words or letters sometimes. We often have trouble identifying whether a letter is capital or lowercase. So specifically P's and S's. But thankfully, Leith has a process that is very thorough in our transcriptions. Someone is assigned a certain section. And after we transcribe it, Leith will go over it again and make sure it is exactly how Forbes wrote it. When we encode the transcriptions through XML software, we go through the transcribed writing again to make sure it is all correct. Can you imagine Robert Forbes thinking somebody is recapturing his work in today's language? Leith likes to say Robert Forbes has added 18th century hyperlinks because he uses footnotes and connects everything in all throughout the volumes. So we're kind of just following his lead and using our modern day technology. He seemed to be a man ahead of his time. Definitely. I think just the act of writing 10 volumes and recognizing that this needs to be remembered is someone ahead of the times and being aware that this is likely to be forgotten, so I need to write these down. 
Well, it seems that he has the majority of stories of the Jacobites, because we don't hear the Jacobite story. We hear the Hanoverian story. He has all kinds of voices and all stories that we do need to tell and do need to be remembered. I listened to your presentation at the Highlands game, and I realized that that the Lion in Mourning contains the story of women who supported the Jacobite cause. Can you comment on that? Yes. I've always been interested in recovering women's writing and stories. When I first started on the team, Leith was happy to begin uncovering these stories within the manuscript. One of the main uses of the manuscript is finding these voices that have typically been forgotten in history, such as women, Gaelic speakers, and the working servant class. We are currently working on spotlights for the website when it is all up and running, where users can read short essays on these marginalized voices. I spoke about these women at Scottfest BC, as you mentioned, this summer, and I would love to share some of these with you today. So it is important to acknowledge that many of these women's stories are being told by Forbes and they're not necessarily their own voices. Let's begin with Lady Anne McIntosh, born Anne Barkuharson, who married Angus McIntosh, chief of the clan McIntosh, in 1741. When the Rising took place four years later, her husband joined Lord Luden's troops on the side of the British government, while Anne raised men for Charles Edward Stewart's army. She eventually earned herself the status of Colonel, the first woman in Scotland to have that honour. In The Line in Mourning, Robert Forbes tells the story of Lady Mackintosh's quick thinking when Charles Stewart stayed at her residence, Moy Hall, when the Jacobite army was in retreat in Scotland. Stuart was potentially under threat while staying with Lady Mackintosh because Lord Luden, a colonel in the British government army, received intelligence of where the prince was staying. Forbes recounts this event, noting the bravery of Lady Anne Mackintosh. Quote, when the prince was about going to rest, or rather when it became dark, Lady Mackintosh ordered one Fraser a blacksmith, who happened to be there by chance having a desire to see the prince and four servants to get loaded muskets and to go away privately beyond all the guards and sentries, without allowing them to know anything about them or their design, and to walk on the fields all night and to keep a good lookout. Thereby, she said, they would prove a check upon the guards and would be ready to discover approaching danger. All this proceeded merely from Lady Mackintosh's great care and anxiety about the prince. Lady Mackintosh made it possible for Charles Edward Stuart to escape. Another similarly courageous woman was Anne Leith, who helped keep prisoner soldiers alive and fed, while risking her own health and safety for them. Leith's section is different from the other stories within The Line in Mourning, as Forbes was copying letters that we believe Anne Leith wrote herself. Leith writes, From the 17th of April until the 29th of July thereafter, I never was two hours at a time in my own house, but while I slept, still going from prison to prison and from one great person to another, soliciting favors for the distressed. She also recounts her unfortunate persecution, writing, I was seized and carried prisoner by this Captain Ayres, and narrowly searched for letters or other papers, but luckily none about me. Leaf eventually was able to send a letter to a, quote, true friend, who told Captain Ayres that she was a private gentlewoman who was only visiting some of her relatives who were prisoners of war. Leith was persecuted three more times after this, but, quote, no confined above four hours at a time. Anne Leith downplays her own experiences. 
She was taken prisoner four times and due to her constant efforts to provide provisions to the prisoners, her health suffered greatly. But despite her difficulties, Leith manages to note joy and success in her account, stating, I had the good fortune to see a great number of friends, relations, and the best acquaintances I had in the several places of my residence, which together with the hope I had at the time, put me in top spirits. Leith did her best to remain positive and her efforts must not be forgotten. Her account is especially significant due to the possibility that it is unmediated. While other women are mentioned in the manuscript, they are often simply referenced or present in the account, rather than speaking or sharing their own story. While we cannot confirm that Leith's accounts have not been altered, it is a section of the manuscript that focuses solely on an exceptional woman and her efforts for the Jacobites, told through a first-person point of view. The next account is on Anne McKay, a Gaelic-speaking woman from the Isle of Skye. McKay was chosen to aid two wounded soldiers, Robert Nairn and MacDonald of Ben Finley, by bringing them supplies. McKay helped them from April 1746 to March of 1747, and by then her job turned into something much more risky. Forbes quotes Sir Francis Stewart, who was giving him the account of Anne McKay. That quote, a plot was laid by some charitable ladies for helping Nairn to make his escape. Of this plot, the poor Highland woman, Anne McKay, was made principal manager, and indeed she managed wonderfully, for after equipping Nairn in warmest manner, he could be clothed in. She decoyed the sentry of the door of the cellar, by which means Nairn slipped out and made his escape. Unfortunately, McKay suffered the consequences of her efforts and received unspeakable punishments and torture. McKay never disclosed information about Nairn, eventually was put into the town's old tobu, the Burr's main jail, where she was kept for many weeks. Her story is one of courage and strength, which is important to spotlight in a history that is almost entirely remembered as male. These stories of women aiding prisoners and soldiers is not often the narrative that is shared of women's histories. There is an assumption that women were not present in wars or battles, which is simply not true. While women may have not been fighting in the literal sense of the word, they were fighting for the Jacobites who would not have been what they were without women like Lady Anne McIntosh, Anne Leith, and Anne McKay. Robert Forbes mentions many other women, such as poor Kate, who could not talk one word of English, being a native of Skye, and who generously offered herself to Miss Flora MacDonald when she could get not one that would venture to go with her, when Flora was captured and sent to the prison ship in Lee. As well as the nameless servant lass who shows her feisty nature, when asked to clean the feet of whom she thinks is a servant, is actually Charles Edward Stewart in disguise. When asked, she exclaims, no such thing, although I wash the master's feet, I'm not obliged to wash the servants. He's but a low country woman's son. I will not wash his feet indeed. These women, as well as many others mentioned in the pages of the manuscript, represent the fullest account of the Jacobite Rising. The Line and Morning Project aims to do more than just write about these forgotten women, but to add their voices into the narratives of Jacobite's history, using their words and stories that are just as important as their male peers. These women were exceptional, and I am so pleased that you brought them out in your presentation. They inspire us today to have courage. Yes, they do. What was your role in this project? My role kind of changes based on the needs of the project, like all the other research assistants. 
So I began in January by transcribing this long section written by James Gibb, which was basically a 70-page grocery list. It was actually really interesting. It's written in such a way that is very complicated to transcribe. So it was a good way to start the project because I basically saw all of the weird lines and symbols that Forbes has. It exposed me to the expansiveness of the manuscript right away. And then in the summer, most of my work was done transcribing and learning how to encode. As well, Leaf planned and hosted two incredible conferences, which I was lucky enough to present at. The first being in Edinburgh at the university's Institute for Advanced Studies in the Humanities. This was my first time visiting Scotland, and it was amazing. How has this changed the way you think about academics, about storytelling, about what you want to do going forward? Honestly, it kind of changed everything for me because... When I worked on projects before at the university, specifically the Women's Print History Project, which is run by Michelle Levy, and that has been the start of my whole kind of 18th century journey. But this project specifically opened so many doors and just exposed me to the amazing Scottish group of academics that are super welcoming and super supportive. I've always loved Scotland, and I never thought that my love of the country would grow my career, but apparently it can. All my love for Scotland is helping me make connections and find career paths and research interests, and I'm hoping to do my PhD at the University of Glasgow. That catapulted through Leith, thanks to her. So you are saying to me that the Lion and Morning manuscript is important today that what is written in there resonates with a universal spirit of humanity. When you look back at these last months, what would you recommend for somebody who would be interested in this type of research? Honestly, I think being really passionate is just the thing that really helps you get there. I think it's probably clear that I really care about all of this. Scottish studies, women's studies, having that passion just really helps you make connections with people because it's just people bonding over things that they have in common and research interests that they both care about. And making a connection with someone like Leith Davis because I love Scotland, just finding someone that you can trust like Leith and share your love of whatever it is. It's a love of story. It's a love of humanity. It's the love of being connected, not only with today, but with the past, because what you are doing now, Juliana, is setting the stage for the future. And I am excited for you. I think this is wonderful. And I am thrilled that you joined me today. I'm very happy to be here. And I always love talking about the manuscript and the project itself. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for joining Juliana and me on Tea, Toast and Trivia. And a very special thank you, Juliana, for opening the doors of the past and demonstrating the power of story to influence our lives today. Listeners, I invite you to meet up with Juliana and Dr. Leith Davis at the Research Center for Scottish Studies at Simon Fraser University. The center, located at Simon Fraser University, Burnaby Campus, provides a focal point for faculty, students, and all who are interested in exploring Scottish history and culture and the connections between Scotland and Canada in the contemporary 
global landscape. It is a place where the past reaches out to our time and reminds us to live boldly with courage and hope. And until next time we meet, dear friends, safe travels wherever your adventures lead you. Sing me a song of the last that is gone. Sing that last the eye. Mary, her soul, she sailed on a day over the sea to sky. Billow and breeze, islands and seas, mountains of rain and sun. All that was good, all that was fair, all that was me is gone. Sing me a song of the last that is gone, say that last the Yeah.